0: you're just leaving it up to the moment.
1: Yeah, I have I can't decide in advance otherwise like it would be inauthentic. Yeah, it'll be inauthentic. <laughs> wow. And that's my catchphrase for life, just be as relentlessly authentic as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, that's a complete joke.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's not my motto at all. <laughs>
0: Mark Standish and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto where I'm a junior member. We gather members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS.
2: This semester, we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in the course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Danielle Yet, and I'm also a junior member at ICS. Today, we're talking to Keegan Irish, who graduated from ICS with his MA in philosophy just last year. Keegan's going to tell us about the work he's been doing with the Working Center nearby in Kitchener. We'll welcome Keegan to the podcast in just a minute.
3: Is there something that just irks you, that gnaws at you, that people just don't understand? For our first segment, Here's My Thought, we're giving folks the chance to set the record straight on any issue of their choice, big or small, in five minutes or less. This week, it's my turn. I'm Ron Kuypers, President of ICS, and here's my thought. Navigating Toronto's transportation infrastructure in whatever mode can be daunting at the best of times. Our freeways are congested, the TTC is often overcrowded, With some neighbourhoods seriously underserved, cycling infrastructure is spotty and disconnected, and pedestrians are often abandoned to navigate narrow crowded sidewalks with rounded curb cutaways designed so that cars won't have to slow down, and which leave those on foot looking wistfully and longingly at that distant shore upon which they one day hope to arrive four to eight lanes of traffic away. To make matters worse, local and provincial politicians have done an amazing job of mining this field for political gain, pitting all users against each other. We Torontonians remember well when our late, infamous Mayor Rob Ford declared that the undeclared war on the car was over and immediately saw to the removal of the Jarvis Street bike lane just before cancelling the previous Mayor David Miller's promising transit city plan, a plan that would have solidified Toronto's high-speed public transportation network with light rail trains and key strategic corridors. I'm certain that people from other cities and towns recognize this dynamic. It's particularly tragic and debilitating in the midst of our struggle to deal with climate change, when users of all modes must work together to burn less carbon. I'm a user of all four modes. I own a private vehicle. I cycle frequently for transportation and not just recreation. I ride the TTC more often than I would like. And daily, I join the throng of pedestrians hitting Toronto sidewalks on feet, canes, and wheelchairs. My vast experience with each mode has provided me with some perspective on this problem, which I will now share. The reason why it is so often miserable to get around via any of these modes is I submit a direct result of the current reality wherein users who identify with one mode in particular pit themselves against the others. My colleague Gideon Strauss, who gets around town primarily on foot, has told me on more than one occasion how much he resents cyclists, especially those who won't stop at pedestrian crossings. I've had motorists hurl obscenities my way while traveling by bike simply for signaling my intention to enter the left turn lane. Presumably, they would rather have me cross at the crosswalk where I would then face the justified wrath of self-righteous pedestrians like Gideon. Public transit users only manage to avoid such direct conflict because that system is nearly completely segregated from the carnage now taking place on Toronto's roads. And make no mistake, vulnerable users are paying with their lives. But lack of political vision for this transportation system has also led to underdevelopment and dangerously overcrowded subway platforms, not to mention lost battles over which mode should command more share of the public purse. I have often thought how short-sighted it is for car users in particular to pit themselves against other modes, as though installing a bike or bus lane could only count as a competitive adversarial move in a zero-sum game with only winners and losers, when in actual fact, study after study has shown that the way to beat traffic congestion is to increase service in other modes and get people out of their cars. These studies also show that adding capacity for more cars only provides temporary relief as eventually these new pipes too fill up with water and subsequently become clogged, leaving us with an even bigger carbon emissions problem with more cars than before idling in gridlock. If I knew for a fact that I was a car driver for life and that the only way to change that would be to pry my cold dead hands from the steering wheel, I would do everything in my power to ensure we elected governments that promised to bolster our cycling and public transit infrastructure, thus encouraging thousands upon thousands to get out of their cars, leaving more of the open road for me. The fact is that North American cities have been designed largely with the personal automobile in mind, leaving the users of all other modes fighting for the remaining scraps. Could this be the reason cyclists and pedestrians are so often placed in situations of real and potential conflict? You bet. Is this the reason more public funding goes to maintaining our freeways than to building new public transit? Right again. The whole matter comes down to deciding what kind of cities we want. In the mid-20th century, the city of Amsterdam also experienced the effects of dramatically increased private automobile use. But in the 1960s, in typically blunt Dutch fashion, a mass of citizens looked upon this situation and simply declared, No, I don't like it. What ensued was the development of a transportation planning policy that recognized the equal rights of all users and that would cease to privilege one mode at the expense of all the others. It's no utopia, but I had the privilege of cycling in Amsterdam this past summer, and the difference between that experience and my experience cycling in Toronto is stark. And Toronto is ahead of most Canadian cities. Cities that are dominated by cars have allowed themselves to be pocked by something inhumane and ugly. Let's finally admit it. Our roadways are a network of scar tissue, sclerotically cutting us off from each other. Car users themselves would benefit from doing something about this situation. By agreeing to bolster other transportation modes, they would experience less congestion, and the city they navigated would be a more beautiful and healthy place in which to live. Hell, if things improved for other modes, dedicated car drivers might even be tempted to leave their cars at home once in a while and join their fellow citizens in using these now-safe, Attractive, uncrowded, and less polluting alternatives. Either that, or they can aver what if climate change is a hoax and we make the world a better place for nothing?
0: For our second segment, We at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance, and discerning moments of judgment as a community. So we're asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their work and lives. Today, we're joined by Keegan Irish, a recent ICS alum. Keegan wrote his master's thesis on the idea of natality in the work of Hannah Arendt. Since then, he's gone on to the Working Center in Kitchener. A community project focused on creating an environment of support and opportunity for those pushed to the margins of society. So, welcome, Keegan. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: The pleasure is all ours and our listeners. (laughs) So, the Working Center. In an article on their website, they describe the spirit behind the project as, quote, A few people with a few tools can do extraordinary things for their neighborhoods. It is a street-level democracy that sows community gardens and fixes bikes for people who can't afford main street rates, end quote. Why don't you tell us a bit more about your experience of The Working Center?
1: I got involved with uh, The Working Center through a uh, good friend of mine. And uh, he had uh, told me about it and recommended that I come check it out and uh, thought that it would be something I would be interested in because I would kind of uh, expressed to him before, um as i was finishing up my degree uh where i was coming from that i was interested in getting a bit more like uh politically engaged and a bit more engaged in some of these like uh community building projects and uh this is something that they've been working on for uh many decades and so it seemed like the kind of place that uh, Um, I would have something to learn from, Mm -hmm. uh, that there would be people who had gone through kinds of experiences and um, in meeting marginalized folks where they were at and in trying to uh, build kind of more um, robust and integrated communities. And those are things that I was really interested in. So I decided to take the plunge and apply. And uh, it was I was kind of hired right away. It was very startling. And then I just (laughs) (laughs) sort of, uh, I rearranged my life. I uh, moved to Kitchener and I said, all right, like this is something I'm going to try out. I'll see how it goes. Then when I got there, I found out that there was a book that uh, the founders, uh, Joe and Stephanie Mancini had written about the working center. And Uh, I think it's called The Transition to Good Work, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. And um, so this, I I was like, this probably would have been a good idea to have read in advance of applying, but I'll read it now. And uh, in that book, they describe the history of the center and uh, it's kind of guiding ethos. And so maybe... Yeah, the best way to describe it is almost to tell that story in brief. Yeah, for sure. So it started in the 1980s um, when Joe and Stephanie Mancini um, started – a place to help people transition from uh, a lot of like industrial labor jobs where uh, a lot of the factories were closing in Kitchener and around South Ontario in general. And so there were a lot of people out of work who needed to reskill and find work. And so they basically started out as like an unemployment center. Mm. Um, But as time went on, they... just kind of ad hoc tacked on different projects that they saw as important needs in the community. And so one of the kind of flagship programs, I guess, is the St. John's kitchen, uh, which is a kitchen where, uh, people can come and there's a free meal served, uh, Five days a week, um, breakfast and then lunch is the big meal that they have. And that's uh, also kind of an opportunity to build community. That started out in like a church basement and eventually evolved into uh, having its own dedicated building. And there's kind of a lot of care and like intentionality that has gone into building these different projects. Some other examples would be, as you mentioned, the fixing bikes, there's the recycle cycle. So that's a place where you can come, buy bike pieces very cheaply, and they have the tools such that you can learn to Um, work on them yourself. There is um, uh, There are a couple cafes, one of which is called the Queen Street Commons. And um, the purpose of that cafe is to kind of create a common space where uh, different people from different backgrounds can meet and build community. The food is like very affordable. And uh, the, so what... Emerged as they were putting together these projects were like kind of a series of virtues that they hope to embody, and uh, so it's really guided by this core kind of virtue ethic that they've uh, developed just through the work. And so, uh, one of those um, one of those core virtues is what they call community tools, uh, which is about really providing tools for people to like get ownership for themselves. Over their experience of life. And so that would be is that the bikes? Is that your food? You know, but the bikes would be a way to get around, right? To get from home to work to after school to et cetera, et cetera. So it's about providing tools for people to uh, be able to thrive. And um, yeah, there's also a farm that they have. So it's uh, where you can learn how to grow your own food and uh, you can. Um, gain ownership around your experience of food systems. So a lot of the projects are motivated by those kind of like core ethical principles that they have. And I found that to be really uh, compelling.
0: What exactly do you do for the working
1: center? Right. So I do a couple different things. I work in one of the cafes called Fresh Ground, and that cafe is – Uh, It's another community's tools project, which uh, is an attempt to kind of respond to uh, eating habits in the face of climate change. Mm -hmm. So it's all uh, plant-based whole foods, you know, and it's uh, seen as a much more kind of sustainable way of uh, eating. And so, you know, people can come and learn how to cook in – uh, in this way for themselves, and uh, ha- kind of we can host conversations about what it might mean to eat in a way that's sustainable for the planet. I also um, do some work for a project that they have called the Job Cafe, which is um, a series of small, occasional work projects that people who have trouble holding down full time work are able to access hmm. and, uh, get work that way. Like so gigs? yeah, like gigs, like there's uh, for example, garbage collection, you know, so there'll be regular garbage collection shifts around the downtown and, um, people who maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to work are able to do that. Or they'll have, uh, they do moving. So they'll, if someone needs a move, they can call them up and we have, we can provide them with the workers to, uh, Uh, to do that move or other projects like that Hmm. and um, the one that i'm most involved with is called um, discovery team and it's kind of like a light form of street outreach which is really just geared around building community uh, in the downtown and uh, kind of building relationships it um, there is a way in which you can kind of connect people in with services if that's something you like there's kind of a com- uh, conflict mediation aspect as well uh, because if you do have a good relationship with someone then you might be able to step in where um, uh, somebody else might not yeah yeah so i i and uh, i was more heavily involved with that over the summer and uh, this fall i have transitioned into working in the cafe primarily while still maintaining some work there
0: so this season on critical faith we're focusing on the themes of evil resistance and judgment And I was wondering what your thoughts are on evil in Canada um, and the ways in which the work at the working center uh, work to address the evils that you see in Canada.
1: So I'm going to come at this in a bit of a roundabout way and talk a little bit about just my personal experience. So I came out of doing this master's degree at ICS and um, I was... During that time, I kind of shifted in my mode of reflection where I'd been very concerned about certain kinds of theoretical questions and the way that um, uh, theoretical commitments played out or worked themselves out into political reality. And I increasingly uh, became concerned uh, with what – what does it look like to live out these uh some of these ideas like what and even maybe the ideas come secondarily to what it means to or to an experience of uh really living out a different kind of community like outside the dominant uh social paradigm mm. uh, so it's like previously like in years past i've been asking a lot of questions about like oh um what does it mean if you believe in, uh, you know, to kind of put it in Christian language, like a substitutionary atonement kind of theology, as opposed to a more like historical Christology. And isn't this like really important for these questions of justice mm-hmm. and so on. But increasingly I was like, does that, is that very important? Uh, does that really matter if uh, on the ground, you know, the way in which we're kind of like helping someone's, uh, material life, um, uh, like how does that really cash out, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, had, I I shifted gears a little bit. And as well, there's I, to translate that into uh, um, maybe like political theory, it's like, okay, so you have these ideas about theory, but what does the praxis look like? And I was increasingly interested in that question. And a lot of the themes I was writing about in my thesis like dealt with questions of political action. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, like I've thought about this stuff a lot. Like I'd like to act and I'd like to learn how to do that. And so – For me, the working center has been or I want it to be a place where I can learn some of the skills necessary to take those kinds of political action. Hmm. When we talk about, for example, an opiate crisis and we uh, look at that through the lens of like statistics and uh, this sort of thing, we lose that human Uh, peace. We lose the stories on the ground of the people who go through that and who really um, both are driven to, um, drugs, uh, and addiction because of their experience of pain. And then in turn, um, feel the pain of what it is to have like people that you love, uh, caught up in the throes of addiction, you know, and I'm sorry, like every individual number in one of these statistics, you know, is a human being that has this whole like uh, enfleshed incarnate story and has, um, you know, a network of people around them that, that care about them and love them, or or uh, that have conflictual uh, relationships with them. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there are these kind of stories, and it's, I wanted to get in there and I wanted to see like what what are people doing on the ground as well to like materially improve the situation for those people and how can I help out? And so the work that I'm doing, uh, on the one hand, uh, as I was mentioning, like with the um, uh, with the kind of out, more outreach focused side of things is helping me hear some of those stories and helping me build relationships with uh, folks who are kind of really living these things that I was have concerned about, but maybe had less of an immediate connection to. Yeah, And so that's really helped uh, just crystallize some of these uh, narratives for me and make it real.
0: So you just talked about the way that abstractions can strip away the human narrative um, of the people that are involved in, systems of oppression. I was wondering about the relationship between evil and abstraction, and more specifically, what role can abstraction play in solving or addressing issues of evil in our world?
1: Yeah, great question. Excellent question. Um, So there are different kinds of abstraction, right? There is a kind of statistical or numerical abstraction, Mm -hmm. which can provide certain... Uh, kinds of handles on reality and that can help you construct certain narratives or craft policy and so on and so forth. Um, and you know, that is a kind of abstraction um, and it has certain uses, but it also has limits. There is also a more kind of ethical kind of abstraction. I think when we talk about evil, that's really what we're getting at. Yeah. We, we want to say like, Oh, these kind of particular cases of like harm or pain, or these particular stories, whether they're grouped together or abstracted into a statistic or not, they are instantiations of this kind of broader, more general kind of element of our uh, moral condition here as human beings, right? And when, and and we can ponder that question about our condition itself. Um, And that can give you a different set of handles on uh, understanding reality than, for example, just the statistical um, kind of abstraction. And I think what really the the ethical kind of abstraction can do that is um, really important is that it can galvanize and motivate people to come together around kind of shared beliefs and shared narratives and then by implication like shared visions of a possible future you know like if we say this is evil right that is wrong and we're we're not just saying oh like statistically x y and z number of people have perished you know, and their biological lives have ended, you know, we're saying something more than that. We're saying, no, um, those people died, but they should not have, and the world can be otherwise, you know? Mm. So, um, and and that is the more galvanizing or, like, challenging claim that can really, like, electrify the soul and, and make you see that, um, you know, We have agency in relation to in relationship to reality So it's like we can analyze the economic situation of our society and say um, There's a great deal of inequality Um, But you can go one step further and say and that is wrong that is unjust and in fact, it's evil, Mm -hmm. you know there is a, an evil at work. There is something dark and predatory, um, sort of lurking behind uh, these these more finite kinds of abstractions about um, how much money somebody's making or whatever. Um, you know, there's a deeper sickness here, and that's really what um, we need to tackle if we want to change the. Um, more immediate kind of abstraction of the, of the numerical values or whatever, like that can only ever be a tool for us on this path to developing some other way of like relating to one another, both um, in at the level of the personal relationship, but also at um, a social level uh, also at the level of societies, you know, like, so the statistical tool, for example, can say uh, we've let this many hundred of people, hundreds of people, um, die or like live in misery, you know? And so it, it can point that out to us. Like here is where that evil is being manifested. But in order to deal with that, like, yes, there are going to be policy, um, changes, but we also need to really look at ourselves and ask like, as a society, why are we sick in this way? Mm -hmm. You know, and what kinds of steps can we take towards healing, you know? And that's work that, We have to do as individuals, but that we do also have to bring into that broader political discourse and get serious about, you know, Mm. in a way that I feel is not um, happening on the, uh, like, for example, national, you asked in the particular context of Canada, for example, on the national political stage, you know, Mm. like. Yeah, sure. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about indigenous issues a little bit. But they're always implements in this like um, kind of uh, political horse race or whatever. You know, they're always tools for um, this uh, kind of raw game of power. And I think that we really need to ask ourselves why that's taking place at all. Why are we using these things in this manipulative way? Why aren't we looking into our souls and asking like, How can we address these issues seriously? Like, what is it about our society that we're okay with letting these people die or we're okay with building a society that allows, uh, you know, many, many thousands of people to live in these miserable conditions? You know, that's, I think, what is important about uh, ethical kinds of abstraction. You know, and it's like it's putting those two kinds of abstraction together, I think, both the ethical and the more like technical, um, you know, you, you you do need to bring those things together in order to really galvanize people and to make them look inside and uh, ask themselves, like, why why we would allow something like that to take place. Yeah. Uh,
2: so you mentioned when, a bit earlier um, how you'd heard about the Working Center through a friend of yours who it kind of seemed like this is the perfect thing for you, like obviously this is something you would like to do. Um, and then kind of falling into it. And you've talked about kind of the experience of being there, adding kind of flesh to these things that you'd been thinking about in more abstract terms. Um, and I'm just wondering if there's anything from the time that you have spent at the working center that has you've been surprised to learn.
1: Yeah. So there have been a lot of surprises. Uh, one of the words that the working center has a very kind of particular language in the way that they speak about things, and I haven't really been speaking in it because I'm not fluent in the way that. So <laughs> they, you'll 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 get to know some of the folks who uh, have been working there longer, and they really speak in a very in a very particular way. But one of the words that they love is uh, complexity. There are always complexities, you know. Nothing is uh, as it seems. Nothing is str- kind of straightforward, and uh, when you're trying to build community in like a non-hierarchical way. There are always going to be complexities and challenges, things you have to take into account, and then learn to work around. And it you have to do it. Um, ad hoc makes it seem like you're you're not thinking about it, but they are. They you know you are doing it. There's there is a lot of like intentionality involved in the way that you work around certain kinds of problems, but you have to deal with them on a case by case basis. You know, mm-hmm. and so. Um, all that to say is that there have been a lot of surprising things about working there, and I—it's a difficult place to like really grasp what it's all about in advance. Um, you sort of have to be thrown into it uh, to get that. Uh, but in particular, I'll zero in on something that I've more like taken away as um, something that is. Good to know, I guess, or like something that I found surprising, but that is something that needs to be addressed, at least from my perspective, or it's affected my political reflections in the sense that I think a lot in terms of like class analysis and in terms of uh, asymmetrical economic relationships and um, relationships to um, like material productive forces, right? Um, And so when you think in these terms, you often think that people who are on the losing end of asymmetrical economic relationships would want to get out of that situation and would be sort of interested in um, fundamentally altering the kinds of social dynamics that brought that about in the first place. But I think what I've learned is that people – in reality, have very different ideas about what the social issues are. Like it's not as though everyone is agreed about why um, certain kinds of situations come about, or like when there are new political developments. That, like from my perspective, I'd be like, "That's a bad thing." Someone who I would think would also say that who like comes from a, maybe like a class background where I from from my analysis like they would be negatively affected by that they might say actually like X, Y, and Z thing about it are are quite good and uh, you know oh it's good for the city or it's good for our situation that this is happening and so like just those complexities has been what's really surprising to me where like people hold all kinds of different political views regardless of where they are um, uh, in terms of like social and economic hierarchies. And I think that has been, it's sort of like, it just shows you that it's like a bewildering jungle out there of like people and beliefs, you know? People are all over the map. Like people are not unified on almost anything. You just, and so when you are involved in like community building, it's like you're having people from all over the place and you're dealing with stuff that's like, wow, like you would never have thought this would come up, that you see the world that way despite your situation or maybe not despite, maybe because of your situation, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, that was maybe like a very abstract way of putting it. Um, so how can I make that more concrete? Let's see. Yeah. So there is a young man who I worked with who, um, you know, has had a lot of experience with like homelessness and, um, Uh, poverty throughout his life, um, experienced a lot of isolation. And yet he, to my mind, holds a lot of very sort of Counterintuitively reactionary political views, where he thinks capitalism is fantastic, thinks that people need to kind of pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and kind of like really embrace this entrepreneurial spirit, and that you know people fighting for like economic justice are like a threat to him and his way of life. Hmm. And uh, to me, like that uh, that that cognitive dissonance is just like baffling. Like, how can you at the same time? Like experience homelessness and be like cast out of your home like as a result of like not having enough money, you know, and then turn around and say like yeah people just gotta like get themselves up and they you know they just mm-hmm. gotta go out there and get a job and they'll figure it out. And it's like I I don't understand how you can simultaneously think that while well going through that experience, you know, mm-hmm. and yet people do. So to me that's like it's it's like how do you how do you navigate that and i don't want to say like oh you know these people who think that way and have, who have had that experience like they're completely wrong about the world that's not really fair and it's like would be like a denial of their agency you know so how do you think about that situation and when i go come back and like reflect on these political principles like we've been talking about like how should that affect that? And I don't have answers to those questions, but those are those were surprises that have come up for me. Like those complexities in terms of like individuals like perspectives and beliefs in relationship to their like social position are they are yeah, they are uh, very complex and multifaceted. And I I'm not sure. I don't think that there's a single approach that you take here. Again, you got to kind of think of things on a case by case basis. But when we do think about these larger political movements and wanting to galvanize people around like crucial political issues, how do you do that rhetorically? How do you do that in such a way that it's like authentic to people's experience and that it's going to bring them alongside and show them that you want to do life with them rather than, um, uh, seem like a threat, hmm. you know? And so from my perspective, it's like that's something that I think the political left has failed at. Yeah. And by that, I mean – I don't mean like the Liberal Party and stuff. Like obviously like they've failed political completely. Lag. Yeah, that's like <laughs> not a real political left. Like, I mean like a serious like anti-capitalist left. I think that's a project that um, if we are uh, people on the political left that we need to seriously start to undertake, which is um, – how do you reach out to people who have been marginalized by capitalist systems of exploitation in such a way that you can really bring them on side and um, help to clarify for them their own experience of marginalization in a way that is authentic and not in a way which is sort of um, jargon-laden in a way that is like uh, very very top-down and preachy right like how do you um, how do we walk with people in in the direction of another kind of future right
2: And that brings us to our final segment. What's your pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Mark, what's your pleasure?
0: Well, um, I love sports. And yesterday, every Sunday, we, I have an ultimate frisbee team mm. that plays through the winter um, indoor. And then we play it in the summer outdoor as well, but I like indoor better. And uh, yesterday we had a great win against a pretty good opponent, and it just feels really good to have a good team, um, to have a good team effort. Uh, and so I'm still riding high, 24 <laughs> hours later from our win yesterday playing ultimate frisbee.
2: Was this a surprising win, or did you feel it coming?
0: Um, Well, this year the the league has changed the times and that means everyone's teams have shifted people because they can't make the time that they have shifted the times to. Um, And so it's always unclear right now who is on whose team. Like in terms of, I I obviously know who my teammates are, but who our opponents are. We know their name. They're like, we played the minions this week, Um, but we don't actually know who's on that team anymore. Mm. um so it was expected but unexpected but it wasn't even so much that we won it was just that our team played really well together um and people people stepped their game up which is exciting nice yeah.
2: i feel like given that it's called ultimate it should still be out- played outside in the winter just for more ultimateness
0: it would just suck <laughs> <laughs> And indoor is oh, it's so much fun because it's so much faster than outdoor because the it's so easy to throw. The rules are different, um, so yeah, it's just like way more fun.
2: Nice. Is this the beginning of your?
0: Yes, it was the second game nice. of the season, and there was a month, a month and a half in between the outdoor season and the indoor season, and so I've been kind of craving, and I'm also been getting out of shape, so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this will fix that. <laughs> Uh, my pleasure involves no exercise whatsoever and is very unsportsman Uh, so unsportsmanlike so unsportsmanlike Uh, I recently heard about this well okay step back there is the textile museum here in Toronto which I have yet to go to um, but I've been meaning to go to for a long time Uh, and then just a few days ago I heard about an exhibit that they're putting on That is, what's it called? It's called Tapestry of Spirit, the Torah Stitch by Stitch. And that's apparently an ongoing project that involves like 1,500 individual people who have together cross-stitched like Genesis, Exodus, and part of Deuteronomy. Wow. Uh, And this exhibit that's on at the Textile Museum at least until November 17th. Um, is like just displaying their work. So, so my pleasure is more of an anticipation of pleasure mm. because I'm planning to go at some point very soon. And it's just, it's very cool. It's like multilingual. So it's multi-faith as well, in addition to being like cross-stitch. So there's like Christian people who have contributed to this and there's stuff in like Greek, which is strange because it's like
0: Not Old Testament.
2: Greek. So I'm guessing they're working with like Septuagint stuff. I don't know. Uh, but it's also in like Hebrew and uh, Arabic. And uh, okay, so it's not just, it says <laughs> Torah is in the title, uh, but it involves Christians and Muslims as well. So it's apparently also involves uh, excerpts from like New Testament stuff, which makes sense of the Greek uh, yeah. and then the Quran as well. So
0: I wonder how they weave this all together.
2: <laughs> Wrong textile <style laughs> metaphor, but okay. <laughs>
0: Wow. And is this an ongoing project? Like, are they planning on finishing it at some point? Like, because it said the Torah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It said the thing that I read said it's the sixth anniversary of the project, um, but like the first major exhibit that it's had. So Mm. I guess it's been going on like for a while, but they haven't done the whole Torah yet. So
0: presumably it's still going.
2: I'm assuming they're going to finish it and then it will be done. When I when I go and find out I will Report try back, to please. let you know. Yes. 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 It's it for our show this week. We hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of the semester. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at and you can also follow ICS as INSCHR.
0: And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.
2: Tell your friends. Tell your wife.
0: Tell your friends, (laughs) Steve.
2: Have kids, have your wife, have your friends. And your friends.